Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. And in this episode, we are going to talk about the first level spells that I am translating from original Dungeons and Dragons to my uh, one of my games I'm working on currently, uh, Thuse and Thermaturgy, uh, which is essentially a hack of OD&D with Chainmail. And then I'm going to do a recap of a session I had, the first play session, playtest session, I should say, of the Unchained game I'm working on, which is essentially using Chainmail as a springboard to create a sword and sorcery game, skipping D&D altogether. So before that, I've got one call in this time from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Let's listen to what Jason has to say. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. I'm in the cars. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm in the car, so I can't look it up. But I know Gardner Fox, you know, the Arthur Kothar, the Barbarian books, he, he has one of where you have a magic user as a protagonist. I don't remember what it's called, but if you look up Gardner Fox Fantasy or Gardner Fox Sword Sorcery, it'll all pop up. Or go to his Wikipedia page, you'll see him. But um, yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones. I mean, you could argue definitely some of the Dying Earth stuff would, would, would fit this category. So wizards definitely can be protagonists. I don't think that's a, a question. I, I do think it's not the norm we think of, but I think it's possible. And I think having it as an appendix in the rules is a really exciting idea. So looking forward to how that turns out. Take care. As usual, Jason now has me looking to buy more stuff. <laughs> oh, yes, Gardner Fox. I think I've read a couple Gardner Fox stories mixed in to some of the world's, I think it was called World's Best Fantasy series that uh, Lynn Carter edited in the 70s. Um, and sure, yeah, there's definitely stories where there are, in fact, protagonists that are wizards of the type, and I suppose a mixture, right? Wizards and warriors. So uh, I guess it's definitely possible. It kind of depends on the world you're setting up. I, I do think that as soon as you start to allow people to have fairly ready access to magic, it does change the entire tone of the world. I know that some people think that if the player characters have access to it, that doesn't mean everybody does. But I don't know. I stick to the idea that magic must be plentiful if it's easy enough for just a player to roll up a character and say, hey, here's another wizard. I think it just makes it commonplace. So the, the more things you make commonplace uh, or easily accessible to the players, the more common they will be in your world that you're building. At least that's the way I look at it. The same is true for the various species. You know, If you're going to make elves just a class that anybody can play, or a race anybody can play, then elves are common enough in your world that it could pop up at any time. If you want them to seem weird and fae-like and not common, then having access to them easily by the players is not uh, not the way to do it in my mind. Not to say you should never let a player have those things, even if they are rare in the world, but it should definitely be a conversation, at least in my opinion. But in any case, I think in the... Um, the sword and sorcery genre that I'm trying to hit with Unchained, as it would be, I'm going to stay away from that kind of stuff as far as the seers, which would be the wizards, being main protagonists, and leave that for the uh, the OD&D hack, right? The, the Thews and the Thaumaturgy. So that way I can have my cake and eat it too, as they say. In this first installment of the spells, <laughs> it'll be the spell section, um, I'm going to try to do the, this and hopefully in each podcast I'll do one section where I cover a spell, probably one spell level per podcast so I can get these all written up and done. If you're not familiar, I'm 
uh, creating effectively a, a new game now by taking my OD&D with Chainmail supplement and kind of twisting it around a bit and turning it into a full-fledged game, which means I need descriptions of things that I didn't need before. Uh, you know, when it was just supplement, I said refer back to the original spell. Here, if it's a game, it needs to have a description, obviously. So um, in a general situation, we've got spell duration and range, if not noted, is one turn and one inch per caster level. Of course, if you're used to OD&D, one inch is 10 feet inside or 10 yards outside. And of course, area effect is not affected by inside or outside. That's always the same. I also put a note that uh, note that spell descriptions are terse and often open-ended, allowing each referee and their place to interpret the use of spells outside the wording hereafter. This should be in an OSR mindset. I think this is pretty common, but I definitely have played with people, especially people who are used to the books with more, you know, specific rules for spells and stuff, where they'll look at it like, oh, but that word there is it and not them or whatever. And they'll, these spells are meant to be loose. So I just wanted to put that little note at the beginning. So if somebody coming to this is coming from a different uh, mindset, there are, I believe, eight first level spells. And I'm going to just go through my writings of them, and I will mention maybe briefly anything I changed. And again, I think that if you have something, or I want you guys to call in if you've got something you'd like to add, or you think that something is weird or not understandable, or you wouldn't know what to do with it if you picked up this game. So, first level spells, magic user. Number one, detect magic. The caster can sense enchantments, spells, and magical wards, including the ore of magically crafted weapons and objects. I think that's real simple. They can use it for any number of things. Hold portal. This spell will hold fast a door, gate, or other means of egress for a number of turns equal to the total of two dice. So in this case, you can, it's 2d6, right? Number of turns. It's not set by your level like other things are. So you could roll way higher than your level, or you could roll lower, I suppose, if you're casting this later on. And and I'll say that like the original description of it talks about strong magic, destroying it and dispel magic, but I don't think that's needed. You know, I mean, I think that under Dispel Magic, we'll talk about that stuff. Read Magic. The caster may read arcane writings such as from a scroll, a strange spellbook, or glyphs etched on an ancient tomb. I think this is important because it seems that the way Read Magic is written um, and maybe often used, and maybe the intention was that it's really just used to interpret scrolls, which is fine. I mean, it, it makes it mechanically that. But I know that I've heard from people, especially in games like BX, where the Magic user only has one spell, like... They're not going to take Read Magic because if they never find a scroll, it's completely useless. So I wanted to make sure that it was clear that Read Magic was more useful than just interpreting scrolls. Read Languages allows the caster to decipher mundane writings as well as codes and to understand the secrets hidden in treasure maps. This is pretty specifically listed in OD&D. It talks about treasure maps, and I think that's a thing that's overlooked by people. So if you pick up a strange map or whatever, the magic user's magic can interpret what's going on there. So it's a, it's a good way to uh, use a magic user uh, beyond like combat or whatever to have the read languages spell is very, very useful as an out of combat spell, even a between adventure spell to like go through things. Protection from evil creates a magical shield that engulfs the caster and prevents physical contact by any enchanted or wholly evil creature. When facing an evil creature, that creature fights and defends as one hit die less against the magic user. In addition, the magic user receives plus one to any saving throws made. Duration six turns. This one, has, this one has a fixed duration. Now, what's interesting about this is <laughs> protection. I'm, I'm not putting in a line here that says, like I know in some of the modern spells, that if you attack the creature, it can suddenly hit you. No, you're protected. You can. This is this spell makes the magic user very, very powerful against those kind of creatures. They can cast it upon themselves in the midst of a bunch of uh, undead, let's say, and not be affected by them. They can walk right through and they can attack the zombies if they want or not. I mean... They can't be, um, they prevent physical contact. So the creature can't touch them, 
But that doesn't mean that they can't slow them down. They can't throw things at them. I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen um, if they're intelligent anyways. Uh, you know, if you're fighting something that's an intelligently evil creature, then it'll figure out a way around it. But things like there's a there's a hundred skeletons blocking the way. Magic user can cast this thing on themselves and just walk right through them. Now, if the spell ends while they're in the midst of it, that's going to be a problem. But I, again, I want my magic to be powerful. And I think that does it. This spell is also, of course, a cleric spell. Light. The caster conjures the illumination that spreads over a three-inch area. While brighter than a torch, this light will not hinder or harm creatures so affected by daylight. This spell can be cast on an object and will move with it duration six turns plus one turn per level. So again, it adds a little bit of extra time. And I specifically pointed out because they do say it's not as bright as daylight. And I wonder, I think that sometimes people wonder why they say that. And I, I think specifically they say that because some creatures like goblins and stuff fight, uh, you know, at a penalty when in daylight. And the light spell will not do that to them. And of course, things like vampires are actually physically affected by the light. So we want to make sure that the light spell does not affect them. It's very clear without getting too far into it. Charm person. The caster may cause a single humanoid, man-sized or smaller, to fall completely under their influence if a saving throw is not made. The charmed creature will generally obey simple commands of the caster, and if treated well, may be convinced to perform tasks that are far outside their nature. A charm may be broken by pushing the limits of the creature too far, as well as by normal means, uh, parentheses, dispel magic. Then I have the saving throws listed below. Uh, for normal types, heroic, superheroic, magic users, any notes. So one thing to be noted here is I'm keeping with the idea that saving throws are going with the creatures, not with the characters. So in other words, the saving throw for this, each of these spells will be in the spell. So one thing there was a whole debate about Charm Person a while back about how it should be used and stuff. And one thing I wanted to make clear to me, I don't like the idea that, oh, uh, their intelligence decides how long they're charmed for. Uh, and I also don't like the idea that you charm, you know, somebody and they immediately just do whatever you want, like some kind of a robot. So for me, charm is about getting them to do stuff they normally wouldn't do, but not so far outside there. You know, you wouldn't be able to walk up to a guard and say, go over there and stab your guard buddy. Unless you knew, or maybe some, some research that they hated each other or whatever, they're just not going to do that, at least not immediately. But if you charm, let's say, a, a city guard... And then every day you continue, you know, you you see them, you bring them a cup of coffee. I don't know what you do in D&D terms. You become more friendly with this person. You have them do other tasks for you that are beneficial to them as well. You know, again, there's little by little, they're stepping outside. The way I like to think about this is imagine that uh, the charm person can work a lot like like what a cult leader might use. You can form a cult by doing charm person. Little by little, you're convincing people. And then next thing you know, six months down the road, that guard is slitting the throats of their fellow guards where they wouldn't have done that immediately. But because you've treated them well, because you've slowly but surely influenced them, they've done it. Now, you can push it, right? You can be like, okay, you're going to do this. And you can try to get them to do it, but I would then allow them a secondary saving throw, possibly with a bonus. So again, this is why I'm leaving it open to the interpretation of the individual referee. You might decide, nope, it doesn't work like that. It just They're just your buddy. Uh, that's just not how I want the spell to be. So I've kind of leaned it heavier towards being very powerful because of that. Finally, our last uh, first level spell, there's only eight of them, sleep. Creatures within range will drop into a slumber, oblivious to any noise or movement around them. Those with the lowest hit dice are affected first, unless the spell is targeted at a single creature. So I always think of sleep as being able to, you can target somebody. If, you, if you're sure you want the, the captain to go out, you can target him first, even though he's the highest hit die. As long as it falls under the, the level, you know, obviously if you target the captain and there are too many hit dice, they're not going to go down. I should point out here too that 
if you target a single creature with sleep, and I think this is obvious here in the reading, but let me know if not, um, then that's all you do. You target one creature. So if let's say a bunch of hobgoblins are coming and one is clearly the leader and you're like, oh man, he might be really powerful. I'm going to target him. And you do. And it turns out he was just one hit die, just like the rest of them. It doesn't matter. The rest don't drop as well. Just the one goes down. So in sleep, you can either target a single creature up to four hit die, or you can basically shoot it out in the area in front of you, essentially. And then it's going to put out the number of creatures, you know, you roll. Uh, then it breaks down the numbers with it are affected and um, range 24 inches. And that is specifically pointed out, no saving throw is allowed. I point that out because, again, there's been some conversation about this. My, my thought was, you don't get a saving throw unless it tells you, because some spells do tell you. But then, back and forth with Jason over Nerds of RPG Variety Cast, I figured maybe I'm better off just writing which spells get saves and which ones don't. I think that makes it a little bit clearer. So, in this case, Charm Person, for instance, gets a save. Sleep does not. The other spells, they don't. there's no reason that they'd be a save for those spells, so I'm not listing them. And again, I guess if you tried to cast light in somebody's eyes or used it outside the norm, then each table would have to decide how that works. All right, so those are the eight first-level spells that are in OD&D that I will transfer over to my game. There are 10 second-level spells, and we'll handle those next time. All right, so let's talk about Unchained. So <laughs> I had mentioned in the previous podcast that I was going to probably wait until after the holidays to do any playtests with this, but I had a game scheduled for Saturday a BX game, we basically, the number of players fluctuated uh, and started to drop. And I thought that um, it would make more sense not to run that exact module as I felt like we needed more players. So I decided, what the hey, let's give Unchained a test. So, and this is kind of interesting. It ended up uh, being a different test than I wanted it to be in a lot of ways, because as I've talked about before, when I'm building this is this game is really based around the idea of using fewer people, like playing with fewer players. And that whole dynamic of the group is not the same as, let's say, a D&D game, or at least that's what I'm going for. But in the end, because some people ended up joining again last minute, I ended up with five players. So we did things a little differently than I would normally have done for this. But I think that's good because that's testing the versatility of the game in a sense. So anyways, let's get to it. My original plan was to have uh, we had four players, which again is still a little bit more than I normally would go with, but we had, we were going to have a hero, a seer, because I'm testing that seer class, a assassin, which is the kind of ninjury class, and then uh, one player was going to play essentially henchmen, like 10 henchmen or something to that effect. That was my original idea. And then two things happened. Number one, I had didn't have an adventure, right? So I wanted to quickly come up with something. And I went to a site that's actually made for Morkborg. Um, it creates like dungeon, but the it's D N G N G E N. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes and I sometimes use this for inspiration. It basically creates essentially a five room dungeon. It basically creates, um, like a reason to be there, a name of it, what's going on, like the kind of baseline. Then it has like the guardian. Um, and then it has four rooms, essentially rooms, if you will, four like, uh, ideas, so I clicked on that and I thought, okay, you know what? This is kind of cool. And it came up with this idea that had like a prison. And I thought, oh, well, maybe they're taken prisoner after a battle. You know, it's not uncommon for a sword and sorcery type story. But then I realized there was just might have been too many uh, people for that. And I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't do the henchman thing. And then we added another player. <laughs> so we had five players. And I said, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to go three heroes, which again is really not the way that I had thought the game would run. Uh, assassin and a seer. So... It, Spoiler, it went really well. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about what I did and how I made it more sword and sorcery and all that as we go through it. Uh, I, like I said, I decided that since the setting itself that came up, that popped up was, um, well, actually what it said was 
the distinctive feature was there was a lot of prisoners. So I thought, well, prison. And the location was a lighthouse. I decided that I was going to have this strange lighthouse that was kind of in the middle of a field outside of this town that they had been uh, trying to, you know, invade as part of a mercenary army, which had been defeated. So they had been arrested, essentially, and sentenced to death by dungeon, as what, <laughs> what, the, what the thing said. So essentially, they were sent into the dungeon uh, with this idea that if they could get back out with, quote, the troll king's head, uh, they would be set free. Otherwise, they would just die in the dungeon like anybody else. So I set up the scenario with the players. It was this tall, tall tower with this flame at the top of it, you know, being uh, tended by this crazy um, man who had been sentenced to tend the flame. Um, and the stairway went along the outside of it. So you kind of climb up this narrow stairway spiraling, spiraling up around the outside of the tower. When they got to the top, they interacted with the, the, the man who told them basically their fate. Uh, you know, bring back the troll head to me and I'll let you go free. Um, he uh, had like kind of this like winch with the large chain, almost like with an anchor on it, where they were going to hang on to it, and he was going to lower them into this tower. Um, when they looked down into the tower, they saw it was actually hollow, and uh, all along the sides of it were cages just filled and filled with 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 uh, people who were clearly prisoners, some dead, some just really, really, you know, thin and, and decrepit, some uh, moaning and screaming, basically set up that kind of scene. And essentially, they were going to get lowered down. Um, <laughs> they did take the moment to think to themselves, hey, what if we kill this guy? But I also pointed out that the t below there was a, you know, basically a regiment of the army who had brought them here. Um, and they asked for weapons and they, they were, they said, we'll drop some down to you, which was my plan all along. So they, the, you know, after a little role play and introduction of the characters, basically everybody uh, intros to the characters. Oh, by the way, nobody had played this before or really read the, the things. We gave such short, short notice. So um, everybody, I just kind of ex briefly explained how you'd make a character. And everybody took like, you know, three to five minutes at the beginning to kind of jot down some notes. And I just went around and had already introduced their characters and it worked out really well. We had a kind of a, a fallen knight. We had a basically a sailor warrior. Um, we had a barbarian classic. We had the assassin was kind of uh, the son of like a, a city watchman who a corrupt city watchman. So he kind of learned his ways that way. And then we had a seer who was, you know, the classic uh, kind of mysterious uh, magic user. And they were basically, they all had their reasons. You know, I said, tell me a little about your character and how they got wrapped up in this situation. And uh, so so they there they were. Um, and then once they were dropped down to the bottom of this long tower, the tower was about 100 feet long, but they went down like 150 feet. So they went down into the ground, clearly, in, into the dark. And they could see above them the, the flickering of the, the lighthouse light and then the weapons being dropped. So they all had to scatter around as their weapons fell into the ground. And then I had each each one of them describe their weapon. Because remember, at a zero level or first level, however you want to put it in this, you basically start with a weapon. So I didn't want to... Um, my way around that, the way that I did this was by making them prisoners. Obviously, the knight would have had a horse and all this other stuff in theory. But the starting, essentially... Um, as a wanderer, so all they get, all they get is a weapon. So they dropped down uh, into this tower. They were given their weapons. Everybody described their weapons. They were in this kind of uh, rough chamber of, of packed dirt with a, kind of an archway leading out uh, into the darkness. They also were dropped down two unlit and one lit torch, which they used to maneuver through. And they moved down. You know, again, we're mostly at this point. We're like I don't know, twenty minutes into it. It's mostly role play. Everybody establishing their characters, getting a feel for you know, exactly what, what their motivations are to be there. And um, they started heading down into it. So the um, the first room 
um, that they encounter. So again, it's kind of, this is very linear. It's very much a five room dungeon. And I, in a lot of these play tests, I'm going to do it that way because I want to kind of see how the system works. So I don't want to make anything too complex. So they're moving down, um, into this first room. And the, 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 the prompt I got from the dungeon thing was, uh, walls, uh, glisten with black ink. So I changed that a little bit to, um, I had a kind of a madman down there. He was, uh, you know, skinny, doesn't really eat. He, he had like a bowl that was made from the, the like a cleft off piece of a skull um, that was full of this liquid that was clearly like uh, stale urine and ink, which was scraped from the, the walls. Half the walls were covered in like this black ink and the other half had been scraped off and he was painting on the wall using a brush made from human hair and bone, which who knows where he got that from. Um, these like snakes with wings because in the next room I got basilisk. So he essentially warned them. Uh, the basilisk is in the room below. You, nobody, anybody who who sees the basilisk dies. You know, you'll never get through unless you have my magic. Uh, and he made the offered the players magic, to which two of them accepted, where they had to cut themselves and bleed into another bowl. Um, and he <laughs> he said, uh, with, with, "If you show this magical ward to the basilisk, it it will not be able to harm you." Essentially, he had them close their eyes and he painted a magic, like, quote, magical symbol on their eyelids. And then he said, you have to show the basilisk the symbol in order not to be killed by it. So in other words, you have to close your eyes. <laughs> so he wasn't lying. Um, so but anyways, three of the party members didn't do that. And they, they headed down into the, into the next room. So again, they're traveling through this dungeon, this atmosphere, whatever. I'm kind of going through it quickly. Um, they came to a porculus because I wanted to do a, you know, a test. And, uh, you know, again, I'm test, playtesting the system. So they go down. Oh, and I should say, too, the since the seer was with them, um, she was able to do some checks to see if she kind of understood if there could be magic or what a basilisk might be. Oh, we also mentioned they asked him about the troll king, um, and she made a good check on that. So I just said, uh, okay, so you know something about trolls, just tell me what it is, and that will be true. And then she made up something about the troll, which I noted down, and um, we moved on. So that's kind of how I handled that. When they came to the porculus, it was pretty simple. They had two characters who had described themselves as being very strong. They easily lifted the porculus up and they moved past it into the next room where the basilisk was. The basilisk ended up being... So again, the the the, the module called for a basilisk, but this is sword and sorcery. There shouldn't be a whole lot of monsters and stuff. So essentially the basilisk was just this, this terrible knight. Um, he was in jet black armor with a two-handed sword. And um, essentially, he, you know, charges at these guys. Remember, none of them have armor or anything. So they're all defending his light foot. Um, they've got whatever weapons they had. So one of them had a two-handed sword, one had like a dagger. So, they, you know, they, they charged in and they had this combat. It was pretty pretty good combat. I mean, because the party was so big, you know, and had three heroes, this combat was not that difficult. Um, it took a little bit for them to beat the Basilisk. Um, I had set the, the Basilisk up. A normal monster Basilisk is six, six hit dice. I set this thing up as six, but I gave it eight hit dice as far as its attack because I had a sword. Uh, they eff effectively beat this thing. Nobody died. Everybody got like hit a few times. But again, if you're a hero, eh, you need four simultaneous hits to go down. Nobody that wasn't a hero ran forward. So the three heroes faced the basilisk and basically took it down. Uh, they cleaved off its head, pulled the... Um, the helmet off and the the then we had the kind of little horror scene basically where the the it clearly was some kind of a, a mummy or something because the it was completely desiccated and it's it's high its eyes had been sewn shut and of course they couldn't see that because it was in full plate 
Um, I guess I should also mention that the room was filled with skulls, right? And the basilisk actually did talk to them and said that it needed so many skulls to leave. Essentially, I'm setting up as they go through this thing that each person or whatever I say that they encounter has a reason to be there and a goal. You know, so the basilisk goal was to get so many skulls, then it could leave. The the guy at the top had to get the troll's head, which is why he was sending the player characters in, etc. So they beat the basilisk, pretty good combat using basically abstract combat, which is, you know, my version now of troop combat from... Uh, chainmail. They moved past the basilisk room um, down into a throne room. Again, uh, from the, the the thing that I printed out, it said uh, a wooden throne charred with, a, with a, a charred body on top of it, basically. So what I decided was that this room was going to be uh, set up almost like a clock, like a big round room with a tall ceiling. And there was going to be 12 entrances slash exits. They were coming from one. Um, in the center of the room was this wooden throne. It actually, you could still smell the char on it. You could see a dead, what appeared to be at first a dead body on there. But as one of the players kind of kind of came closer to the room, the eyes opened up and it was kind of talking in like a gurgly speak. And it was like, rawr, rawr, rawr. and uh, essentially they, they moved in. And when they stepped into the room through all the other entrances, so the 11 other entrances, uh, ran men. So there was 22 in total. So now this was a big troop combat fight. Um, they essentially charged in and, um, the the three heroes kind of stepped into the center to um, to fight to battle these things. They were basically just really, really uh, you know uh, sickly looking prisoners. They had weapons that were bone that was carved. They were pretty much the prisoners from the cages above that were l- released in here. Uh, the Hassan character, though, uh, you know, having because I mentioned that the guy was gurgly, um, he decided he was going to charge in there, so putting himself in a, a way of possibly being attacked, although one of the heroes used the move that you can use, which is defend, and said, I'll take any hits that go against the assassin. Which was interesting, because the, the player just said they wanted to do that, that they wanted to defend them, and then I said, well, there is a mechanic for that, so this is the results of it. If you do that, then any hits that they would have had, you'll take instead. And they were fine with that. So the assassin ran up, and he the, the man on the throne said... "Uh." Fire does not harm the troll, but the troll uses fire. Or something to that effect. I can't remember exactly what I had to say. <laughs> I didn't have it written down. I just kind of scripted, you know, I just played it out. Uh, at that, the 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 first round of combat happened. Obviously, like, they clashed in. The assassin screamed that out um, and ran back to where the seer was. And the seer realized, oh, there could be something going on here. This guy's charred. He said something about using fire. So she said, I'm going to watch that guy on the throne. And if anything seems... Uh, uh, you know, uh, off, I'm going to counterspell. Because remember, the seer has the ability to counterspell. It, you know, as I'm building the seer class, it's really interesting because the one spell that you get, she ended up rolling and got a hallucinatory terrain, which of course she never got to use during the thing. <laughs> that The spell is not really the power of the seer, I, I think, in this system. It's basically the ability to do things like I'm about to describe. So she's looking and she's like, I'm going to watch that. If anything's weird, I'm going to try to counterspell it. Which was brilliant because, of course, that's what was going to happen. There was going to be a uh, a fiery explosion um, from the from the throne. So at this point, it when you do a counterspell in chainmail, it, it depends on the power of the magicians. And of course, I hadn't really established how powerful the the troll king was because I didn't uh, I didn't plan on a seer being you know clever enough to do that. So at that point, I said, you know, what? we'll just roll d six. If you roll. Um, uh, you know, higher than you will be more powerful. If they roll higher, then they'll be more powerful. And she rolled and they were more powerful. I think that's how it was. So she needed to get, I think, an eight or better on two, two six-siders to counter the spell. And she did. 
So the, the, there wasn't a, a extreme fireball uh, to go off in the room. They, you know, that was like round two. Uh, they took out more of these 22 guards. I think at this point they had slayed like seven or eight of them. So I rolled morale, which at that point they scattered and ran. So there was also a broken shield in the room that had um, a treasure map on it, but one of the player characters had used the shield <laughs> to smash somebody. So I did note that they noticed that. I made them roll, um, and they did notice that there was a map scr- scratched on the back, but they had broken the shield, and they could have reassembled it, but um, but the rest of the party was like, we need to move now. The Troll King knows we're here. Also, the Seer was basically holding off that, that spell, right? So when you're doing that, you can't do anything but concentrate. I, I, you know, I decided that she could move. So they basically moved out of that room, towards what's essentially uh, the troll troll king. So in this room uh, on the, the the prompt, I got um, uh, walls etched with the uh, ruins that teleport you when you read them and a throne with a child sleeping on it. So they go into the room and they see pretty much that. The, I did add that the child, this, this uh, young girl, uh, was asleep because that was part of it. Um, and also that she had a book, you know, she had been reading a book or whatever, and it was like uh, leaning on the the throne, you know, she's kind of leaning on it. So now the assassin says to me, well, you know, I want to get in there and steal the book. So I looked and I said, well, you know, uh, an assassin is going to be expert in anything that's like stealthy, right? That's what an assassin does. So as an expert, they were able to roll a bunch of dice. I think they actually could, I said this challenge, this is going to be a really hard task, a heroic task to get in there and get out. I think that was like one die and a five or six succeeds or something like that. So they rolled it and they succeeded. So the assassin got in there, got the book, got back to the party. Then one of the heroes said, well, I want to sneak in there and chop her head off before she wakes up because we think this is a troll. The The seer tried to um, ask about magic and the whole the whole room was magic. So it was really hard to, but clearly the book was magic. So nobody stopped the, well, actually, I think one of the other heroes was like, no, don't do that or whatever. And they said, I'm doing it, you know. So they did it. They had a uh, theater roll six on 1d6 because again, to sneak in and, and chop the head off, which they failed. <laughs> And the little girl woke up, and this started fantasy combat. And this was a really fun combat. Basically, um, the the seer and the assassin, who who fights our fantasy combat as a seer, at least for now, um, needed a 12. And basically, if they had rolled 2d6 and got 12, um, they would have uh, only clashed anyways. But also, they were minus one, because I made the troll king a troll plus one, essentially. So they both couldn't fight in fantasy combat, right? And, you, you know, I, I can... I can imagine that some people might look at that and be like, well, that's bad or whatever, but let me talk about this combat. The three heroes charge in. They needed, I think, an eight. You know, so what I did was whenever you're doing this kind of combat, I, I take a second. You know, I say, okay, we're about to go into fantasy combat. Let's look at all the numbers. And I did this before the other combats as well. We looked and we said, you're rolling 2d6 minus one. You need this number. That's your number. That's always going to be your number against a troll, uh, you know, in this combat. Perfect. Uh, same thing for the others. And I knew the troll's number. So then we went in and the troll was regenerating one hit die per turn, which of course was very powerful. Um, so that was actually a pretty decently long fight. It only had four hit dice, but players kept missing and then it was regenerating. Well, I think the very first hit of it, the barbarian got a crit. So it caused two hit dice of damage. And I was like, oh, this is going to be fast. But <laughs> it ended up being, I think, five or six rounds of combat, maybe a little longer. But during that time period, the assassin, you know, had the book uh, and they, they had given it to the seer who immediately was like, Okay, well, I'm going to just focus on this book and counterspell just in case something happens. And of course, the book was going to do that fire exploding runes thing. So she was concentrating on that. And then the uh, the assassin was like, we got to destroy the book. So he, he ran over to uh, where the barbarian was, who was fighting with the battle axe, but also had the, was the one who had the torch. 
uh, and lit up his torch on their torch, basically, and charged back to try to <laughs> try to burn the book. So I basically made the book uh, fight as Lightfoot against the attack, and uh, <laughs> um, he. I forgot what happened. No, I, I made a I made a set number from the roll. I think I set like a, a fantasy combat number, and uh, he rolled um, double ones. <laughs> so he basically critically failed. So he jammed the 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 torch into the book, and it went out. Uh, at that point, I had thought he had originally said that he was grabbing the torch from the from the barbarian. So then I was like, well, now you don't have a torch. And the last room had light in it, by the way. I should mention. So it didn't go dark or anything. But no, he was like, no, no, I lit my torch. And then I was like, oh, okay. So there is another torch in the room. So. So then another round, he was like, okay, he's going to go get the other torch. So then more combat happened, and he said, no, I'm not going to get the torch. I'm going to tell the seer, let's get out of here with the book. Let's get away from the, the 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 Troll King. Maybe that will weaken them. And the seer was like, I don't want to leave the party. So he grabbed the book and ran away. And, of course, he, he, told, he said, you know, my intent is actually to, I'm going to run to where we killed the basilisk, take that guy's head, because it was all weird, and take the book and try to get out and, you know, tell the guy I'm here with the Troll King's head. But, of course, as he was running, now the book was too far away from the seer, <laughs> so the spell went off. And when it did, it was a terrible fiery burst, equivalent to the fire attack of a, um, uh, what it would, as a wizard in chainmail, and um, there is for the assassin, there was no safe. So literally, it was he was instantly incinerated. So he's dead. Uh, the book falls to the ground. Uh, the seer, of course, realizes, you know, sees it because she's in the hallway and she basically sees this bright flash of light. Nobody else really can tell. They're not paying attention to it. Um, so she's thinking, oh man, what went on? Of course, she doesn't know what happened. She just knows it was a bright flash. So she she runs back to see if she can help with the assassin or whatever. And the party's still fighting the troll. It's, you know, it's it smashes. Somebody had a critical fail and they got their weapon smashed. But of course, in fantasy combat, you know, that doesn't matter. You can fight with anything. So they started like just using like a, an offhand weapon or their hands to fight it. And uh, the troll fight's continuing. And the seer runs back into the, the room where the, basically the basilisk room. And she notices out of the corner of her eye, she runs past the throne room that the body on the, the throne is now the burnt and charred body of the assassin. And she runs past it into the other room and she sees, you know, essentially a pile of ashes by the book. And she decides she's going to open the book because the book was full of these like weird draw, like childlike drawings. And it actually fell to the ground, open to a page of the assassin being exploded. So she sat down with the ashes on the ground and started to draw in the book, hoping to draw the troll king without their head. So she's drawing that. Uh, and... I think basically right around that time, maybe like one round went by, and then they actually cut off the Troll King's head and then called for her. And when she came, basically the drawing didn't match the <laughs> what happened there, but not because she drew the book. So now they're there in this room and they're just like, oh, okay, she, because there's a seer there again, she's able to interpret that these runes are like going to teleport you if you look at them. But she doesn't roll high enough to kind of know, understand where or know how to control them. Now, if the seer hadn't been in the group, then if they had just been like, we're going to try to read the runes, they just would have teleported. But since the seer was there, I gave them a chance. They were like, no, we don't want to take that risk. We have like families and stuff like that, you know, based on their backstories. So they said, let's go back and return the troll king's head to the man. So they went back through. They called up. We have the troll king's head. They got brought up to the top. And when they got to the top, the old man was no longer there. But instead, there was four guards in uh, heavy armor um, and pole arms who who uh, were waiting and they like threw the troll king's head down on the ground and said, let us be free. And of course those guards tried to push them back down into the dungeon. Um, three of them got knocked down immediately. 
Uh, and, you know, again, in D&D, falling 150 feet, you know, into <laughs> the thing would have killed you, but it's a heroic story. They, whatever, they, they grab the walls, they grab the chain, whatever they did, basically, to, to not die, because I didn't bother, like, making it be damaging, whatever. They just landed at the bottom, now with no light, and uh, following them, you know, because the, the soldiers kicked the Troll King's head back down, and the seer, who can see in the dark, noticed that the Troll King's head now also had a neck and a little bit of a shoulder. And uh, and she was like, oh, no. And up top, the one character that didn't get pushed in fought a couple of rounds, but eventually, um, you know, realized they were outnumbered, basically fighting with a dagger against four guys in plate mail. So they grabbed the uh, the chain and just like slid down and get, joined the rest of the party. At that point, they went back to the teleportation room and basically risked it and teleported out. A couple of things I missed, as I realized as I'm going through this, is that when the thing happened with the guy on the throne, I allowed the seer to realize that the guy on the throne could be killed, you know, and put out of their misery, essentially. They're essentially in torment, being there burnt all the time and being the weapon of the, the troll king. She did actually kill that uh, guy on the throne, like put him out of his misery. Though didn't kill the assassin when they went back, which is funny. A couple of things that I mentioned that were that were mechanically changed for this playtest, have you been following along mechanically? One is that I removed from the assassin the ability to turn invisible and the ability to see in the dark. I left so essentially, uh, Assassin, as it stands, always fights as Armored Foot, fights and defends as Armored Foot, two Armored Foot, I should say. And what I added to it was that they are an expert in all things related to, you know, stealth, Assassins, anything like that. So when you're using the skill check mechanic, they will always be an expert uh, on those kinds of things. So sneaking, moving silently, climbing walls, picking pockets, picking locks if they want to do that, using poison, anything that you can think of that would be related to assassinations and such they will be considered an expert if it's a skill check. And they fight and defend as two armored foot. The seer I changed, uh, I kept exactly the same, basically all most of the stuff from the, the chainmail book. The only thing I changed was instead of fighting and defending as two armored foot, they now fight and defend as one armored foot. So this allows for both classes to be an option depending on the type of game you want to run. So what did I think here? Well, you know, looking back at it, I think, well, first of all, we had a blast. It was super fun. I think having three heroes in the group is a lot. And if you want to run something that's a very heroic D&D type game, like let's say something in the vein of, you know, a lot of times people say that the more modern games are like super heroic and it's hard to kill the characters. If you want that vibe, but you want a really simple game and you want a game that can be more, you know, easily scaled back like magic wise, sword and sorcery wise, uh, and you like a narrative vibe, then you certainly could play it that way. I mean, I could easily see having a party of four players that were all heroes. You would have to ramp up the danger a lot in order to do it, but that's kind of part of the fun, right? Some part of the fun is playing those superhero type characters. I think playing a party with with three people, like one hero, a seer, and an assassin would be a very good balance, as would adding in the, the henchmen, which was the original plan. I think that what would have happened in that case is we would have lost a lot of the henchmen in some of these earlier battles, which is kind of the point, right? So you can have that like uh, that sword and sorcery feel where bodies are dropping everywhere, but the hero always comes out on top. So I, I think overall, as a um, as a playtest, it was pretty successful. I mean, I know the group really liked it, um, even though three of them had never played at all this system. Two had played the OD and D with chainmail, so they they kind of understood the the workings of it. After we talked a little bit, it seemed like everybody really liked the idea of not having stats, like just allowing whatever they had put in their backstory to make a difference, being able to just decide how their character uh, was, you know, was really cool for this type of game. Again, for this type of game where you want to go into this knowing you're playing 
essentially heroes. You know, um, you're playing. This is you know people often say like, well, you're playing Conan. In OSR games, you're not really playing Conan. Maybe one out of every ten characters that <laughs> that survives long enough becomes like a Conan level character. But generally, you're not playing that. You know, you're playing you're playing a little bit closer to the uh, to normal people, if you will. Um, whereas in this game, you are playing the hero. So if that's the game you want, then you could do this in more of a D&D fashion. And I definitely think that this would have worked out just as well. I think they still probably would have succeeded if they'd only had one hero. Um, I think it would have been a little bit more difficult and the assassin and seer would have had to risk themselves more. I would have, my initial idea for this guy that I was calling the basilisk was he was going to be a hero. Um, but then when we had two more heroes, I decided to use the basilisk stats and change that slightly before I didn't change it once the combat started because I don't like doing that kind of stuff. But as I sat down and I knew what we had in the group, I went through the module quickly and made some adjustments. Uh, the Troll King I kept as a troll because trolls are pretty good. I mean, if you're fighting them on fantasy combat, because I did decide that uh, they could, it could only be fought on fantasy combat. So in that case, right, when the whoever was playing the henchman got to that last room, they would not have been able to attack the troll, which is fine because the seer and the assassin really couldn't attack the troll and still had plenty of stuff to do in that combat. I think if you have creative players that want to add their own spin to things, they definitely can can do that. And if you have players that want to fight every round and always attack, then they probably should be playing the hero. <laughs> so that's kind of my my first impressions of the first playtest of this. It makes me even more excited to play uh, OD&D with Chainmail, to be honest with you, because I did like playing with a large group, and I do like the Sword and Sorcery vibe. So I think both games are very viable um, as their own thing. I think playing the um, the one-on-ones, once we start doing that after the first of the year with you guys who have uh, called in your characters, is going to be super fun, so I look forward to that. And, uh, you know, I'll try to do updates on those as we do them so you guys can see where they go. You know, we actually even talked a little bit about the stature. So, for instance, when at the end, when the one character didn't get pushed in, Everybody was a wanderer at this point. I put them at the zero level. But if you had been, if you had stature at that point, you were at the top of the tower. As a referee or as a player, even, you could just say, listen, I'm at the top of this tower. There's like, I'm surrounded by men. There's an army out there, but I want to be free. So let's just narrate how I somehow get through this miraculously and I'll lose stature for it, you know? So it is actually something that a player could decide to sacrifice. You know, you never want to hit this wall where it's like, well, no, you just can't do that. You're trapped inside this tunnel forever. That's the whole point of the stature. And that's what makes the hero special because all the other people couldn't do that. You know, your assassins and seers, they would just they would just die, basically. That's why your main character is always going to be the hero, even if people want to play some of the other characters. You know, hopefully people like that. Like I said, in, in, in play, uh, we really enjoyed it. Everybody seemed to really like it. Uh, you know, and again, I did like an end of session review. I did record it, but I, I said I wasn't going to publish it, and it's really long too. It's like it's like almost three hours, so um, I'm not going to make an actual play out of it. But I'm going to listen to it a few times back so I get more info from it, and I'll probably do this with all of these. I'll do summaries. I think that's better. If you guys are interested in like actual recordings of these things, um, when I do them, either the one on ones or uh, if I do more group ones, and the players are okay with it, I could publish them as actual plays. I guess let me know, call in, let me know about that. But otherwise, I look forward to doing more sessions with uh, Unchained and getting this thing put together uh, so more people can enjoy it. All right there. That's the show for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate uh, the call in, Jason. You guys can check him out. Jason is at Nerds RPG Variety Cast. And if you have anything you'd like to add to the show, feel free to call in. I will continue my uh, exploration through any kind of reinterpretation of the OD&D spells, hopefully in the next session. 
If there's anything else you guys would like me to talk about, feel free to drop me a line here, leave a message, or you could reach out to me on the Audio Dungeon Discord, of course, and uh, or on my YouTube channel. So if I don't talk to you before then, have an amazing holiday season, and all the best. <laughs>